0: Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Please welcome Mr. Blair and Ms. Osborne. Um, Just for the avoidance doubt, this is an education conference, and we should speak about (laughs) education to some degree. Um, We're going to take a a wide-ranging sweep, if you want to call it that, to various issues, not just education, but I know there's a lot of interest in what's happening in the world today. We're trying to, um, the conference theme, as you will both have read, is how do we prepare young people for the future uh, in 2030. Mr. Blair, you've recently been to San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. And we had, a discussion regarding, we had a discussion regarding, well, how do we prepare young people for that, what you saw and what you were told. I would love to hear your view on that.
1: Okay, Vikas, uh, um, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you here today. Um, and to congratulate yourself and Sunny and all the Barkey team for, for putting on what is uh, now a spectacular annual conference. So, well done to you. you. Um, the most the most important thing about the visit that I, that I undertook to, to San Francisco Silicon Valley is, uh, you know. By the way, my children always say to me, "Do not talk about technology in public," <laughs> because the limitations of your knowledge will become immediately apparent uh, to to any educated audience. But even if I don't understand all the technology, I understand its significance. And I think the next generation of technology will revolutionize the world. Um, It should change the way we do everything, including education. And actually, there are enormous possibilities in changing the way we educate young people through the use of technology if we're prepared to, to grasp those opportunities. But this next next generation of technology, I think, should change public services, but it's also going to change the workplace dramatically. It's going to displace some people. Uh, We'll need to rethink um, the whole of, I think, economic and industrial strategy as a result of it. And one of the things I'm, I'm working on at the moment with my institute is, how do you get the change makers, the people who are making all these extraordinary inventions and innovations. How do you get them in the right dialogue with the policymakers, who are going to have to deal with the outcome of all this? Because at the moment, I think the two worlds don't talk to each other much or understand each other much. And the risk of that is that you end up with the opportunities not being accessed, the, the, the dangers and the challenges of it not being dealt with, and the policymakers actually ending up being hostile to the development of the technology when really, A, it's going to happen, and B, we should be embracing it and making it work for us.
0: Mr. Osborne, sir, do you want to take a, take, a, uh, ha, t- take a look into your crystal ball as to what the future looks like and how we as educators should be preparing for it?
2: Yeah, and let me echo what uh, Tony says because about this amazing conference and what Sunny and the family have done. Uh, having not been before, I'm, I'm blown away by it. Um, we hope you'll come every year. <laughs> yeah, well, make it very enticing. Um, the, um, I, one of my uh, one of the things I do now is I'm a, a visiting professor at Stanford University, and um, for me that has been a, a kind of revelation really about the pace of change that Tony's talking about, and it takes me there um, fairly regularly, uh, although I live <coughs> in London, um, and, and it's very exciting. And I'm a, I, I sort of start with an, as essentially an optimist about this. Uh, this, you know, this revolution in technology is brought about by human ingenuity and Uh, free markets and liberal democracies and you know that's a very exciting thing and I I think the challenges it's going to present around employment and the like are are entirely surmountable I think interestingly at an education conference the area which is in a way almost the sort of least changed in our society over the last hundred years is education Mm. I think if you went into a classroom I have teenage children you went into their classroom today you know although they'd have a kind of interactive whiteboard and all of that, it would still look very similar to a classroom hundred years ago. Yes. Uh, the, you know, and, and all this incredible change has not really hit the education sector yet with force. So you've seen elements of it in the United States with things like the Khan Academy, but it's not really come yet to Western education systems, let alone education systems in the developing world. And I think that's really exciting because I think you know, one of the areas most ripe for change is education. Uh, One of the areas where technology can vastly improve the ability of a teacher to, um, you know, address the needs of everyone in the class is technology. Uh, And one of the areas, if you're looking at all these Western economies, that you would say we need to do, you know, one sort of relatively straightforward thing you could do to improve the productivity of these economies would be to raise the education attainment levels. So for me, I think the the coming technological revolution in education is going to be fascinating. I think one of the challenges, probably for all the people in the room, is going to be how public education systems are going to be able to accommodate that change, facilitate that change. And I think the Western democracy um, that that pulls that off will get an uh, early advantage.
0: So both of you, since you've uh, left politics, have, have had very interesting careers. Mr. Blair, you set up your institute, which is doing fantastic work in many spheres, and Mr. Osmond, you are the editor of the London Evening Standard. One of the things that we've been discussing over here is how do we, how do we raise the, the priority of education when it comes to national public systems of education? And Mr. Blair, you very famously, when you were asked your, your election um, commitments or your priorities, and you very famously used those three words, you want to repeat those first, just for nostalgia's sake. <laughs> oh, it's going to take me back.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you can repeat them, George, but it's uh,
1: education, education, education. So, <laughs> <hey>!
0: <laughs> so how, how do we get, uh, the, the issue seems to be in terms of how do we get heads of government to take education more seriously? I mean, you may say, we met, and you said that actually education is regarded very well at the British... Uh, yeah, number 10 down the street in the cabinet table education secretaries of state are regarded as a, uh, is a very good job but actually when you look at the world over does anyone really want to be an education minister?
1: Um, I think more now than before look I actually d- think most governments will tell you that education is a huge priority for them it's not the same as making it a huge priority Right, that's, that's the, the, the problem and I think the difficulty in a way is that it's there, there are two aspects to this. The, the first is that education systems have grown up, as George is just saying, they've grown up with a legacy over a number of years. Changing that is actually quite difficult. There are elements within education systems very resistant to change, frankly. Um, and secondly, you know, we've got to think about education differently today in, in this sense partly because of the way the world is changing so fast. Today, you've got to educate young people to be creative thinkers, right? In other words, it's not enough for them just to turn up and pass the exam. I mean, I've still got a, um, a, 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 my my son is going through his final exams. And, you know, it's really interesting what's changed and what hasn't changed. I mean, what has changed is that he's, there in front of his computer. The teacher isn't the source of knowledge for him. It's more like a guide for him about the knowledge he's pulling in off the internet and elsewhere. But what is still rather depressingly the same is that when you actually analyze what he needs to do, he needs to tick a certain number of boxes, basically. Um, But the creative thinking, the ability not just to absorb information and then regurgitate it, but to make sense of it, to think about it, to question it. I think that is, that's where education policy's got to, to go today. And it's got to go to a much more individualized sense of learning as well with, with young people. Because you know, young, one of the things that we've learned about education over time is young people have different capabilities of learning, but also in different subjects at different stages. And to be able to keep pace with that is, is one important thing that technology can enable. But we're, I think we're a long way off doing that. But the other thing for a country like Britain today is education is a major part of our economy. I mean, what we do in terms of transferring educational um, content and teaching around the world is a huge part of the, of the modern British economy. So what I would say is, yes, you know, and look, we, we made a lot of changes we, we did um, when I was prime minister and, and, and as a government. However, if I was back in power today, I think I'd be taking an even more revolutionary approach to the whole question of teaching and education and looking at how you take it from being something that, yes, it is a great priority of the government, I think, along with one or two other policy areas, it is the single most transformative thing you can do for a country today. And if you, take, you know, if you take any first world country today, you don't get to be a first world country without at least a minimum level of education. And every country that wants to stay in that top rank is going to have to be thinking about how they educate the next generation of children to a far higher quality in a far better way. I think it means a transformation of the teaching profession and its status and standing within society. Um, I mean, again, there were certain things that we did with this w- w- when I was in office, but I think today I'd be again taking an even more revolutionary position. And One of the things about your prize here and so on is that it kind of—it's it, actually putting on the global map. Okay, this is this is something where we, we give prizes for sort of physics and you know, mm-hmm. the, the Nobel Prizes for Peace, and so on and so forth. But education, to have a great educator today, is to have someone integral to the future of your country. So I, I would say to you, yes, I think most governments do say that education is a big priority. But I think we've got a massive distance to go before that, that vision is translated into a reality, which is translated into what the children actually learn in
2: the classroom. Same question. want well, to come back to your question, um, I think the, certainly, let me sp- I'll speak for British politics, I think the status of the Education Secretary has definitely gone up over the 20 years or so that I've been involved in politics, and is one of the plum jobs in the British government, because it's seen as, you know, um, so important to the country's future. And uh, Tony Blair did a very good job, I think, in elevating the status of education in government policy. And if I looked at the government that I was part of, the Cameron government, I would say other than the economic program, which grabbed a lot of the uh, headlines, uh, the education reforms were probably the most significant domestic reforms that were undertaken, where we took, at the time, uh, a relatively small number of uh, comprehensive schools that had become academies under uh, Tony Blair. and basically turned most of the school system into an academy system, uh, essentially giving more autonomy to head teachers and the teaching staff and the governing body, um, and allowing as a result more innovation in, in the public teaching system. So uh, either that was probably the most difficult reform, the most far-reaching reform, and and the one that probably will yield the best results, and you're really starting to see it, in exam results in the UK. but. But I, you know, I agree that it's just the beginning, really, because um, getting education right for a country in the future is, is absolutely central. And as I say, you know, without repeating myself, there's so much sort of technological advance, which you don't yet see, I don't think, in most classrooms, <coughs> in most schools, in most places in the world. Um, so uh, yeah. I think the other interesting thing is going to be whether, and here I, I would love to believe this is possible. Um, you are able to extend education beyond the school years and the university years into this through-life education. And I suspect, you know, in many events here at this conference, people are talking about through-life education, and it's one of the responses to the technological revolution. You know, how do you take the 50-year-old truck driver in the United States and, and turn them into a web designer? I think that's going to be really difficult. Frankly, um, in the history of human uh, societies, in the history of the West, at least in the last hundred years, of taking people whose industries have become redundant, and often through sort of technological change or globalization or whatever, and giving them an, you know, retooling them, repurposing them, giving them additional education. although all politicians of all political persuasions have talked about it, and it's often described as the kind of Cinderella subject, and the, the truth is, no one's really, at least to my knowledge, cracked that problem. You know, people of my age are very difficult to take in and reprogram, bluntly, and reeducate, and uh, give them a new, um, you know, trade in life. And um, and so that I think is going to be that's another big challenge for education. How do you take the, you know, the 45-year-old, 50-year-old person who's profession has just been, um, you know, essentially eliminated by the internet or new technology and, and mm-hmm. don't just sort of park them on, you know, retirement benefits or, or, you know, tragically in Britain in the past, sometimes sickness benefits have been used for this and in other we see it in the United States. So that is a big, big challenge, which I don't think we've even begun to crack uh, in the education world or in the political world.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think this is, this is, this is a big big challenge. I mean, the learning through life is is going to become even more important. And it, it's hard because you're, you are asking people to think quite differently about their own future and their prospects. And um, I remember when I was actually when I was prime minister and we wanted to highlight the importance of sort of uh, adult retraining programs. And I, I went to do a on a course in my constituency and I was sat next to one of the long-term unemployed and they would, would they, I, I was actually learning about technology myself for the, pretty much for the first time, so every so often during the course of the, the session they would do these sort of tests, you know, to see how you, how you were assimilating these new skills and I noticed that this, the guy who was, I was sitting next to was getting increasingly agitated and I said to him after a time, I said look, you know, no need to be nervous, you know, I know I'm Prime Minister, but you know, normal person, blah, blah, blah. And he, he, said, he said to Yeah, me, right. Yeah, yeah.
2: And
1: he said to me, um, no, that's not what's making me nervous. He said, what's making me nervous is, he said that they keep giving us these tests, and he said, actually, I'm outperforming you considerably, and you're Prime Minister, and I'm long-term unemployed, and I'm thinking, <laughs> what's happened to the country here? But, um, so, I mean, I think, I, I think, It's a really interesting thing about government today. If you take a step back and say, what are the things that would transform a modern developed country, take it to the next level? And I think you can identify uh, several things. I think one obvious thing that has not changed is obviously macroeconomic stability, a decent business environment, and so on and so forth. The second thing is probably infrastructure. You know, I think if I was back in government today, I would take an almost 19th-century view of infrastructure. You've got to just renew the infrastructure of the country in a major, major way for today's world, um, both both in terms of the, the Internet and, and access to technology, but also the actual physical infrastructure. And then the third thing would be education. Now if you took if you took those three things and just focused on them relentlessly as a government, if you're in a modern, developed country, those are probably the three single biggest determinants of whether you succeed or fail. But at every level, in particular in education, whether it's early years, schools, universities, you know, skills through life, if you measure where we need to be and where we are, I think the gap's still very, very large.
0: One of the, one of the features of this conference has been um, the engagement of young people um, to our everyday lives. People say that young people are not engaged with politics. Um, they don't, you know, they spend all their time on Facebook or whatever it is that they do, Snapchat. You know, this year, we've had um, three remarkable young people who are in the audience, um, standing over there, who were caught up in the Parkland shooting, and uh, they came and told their stories. And you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, what is the, what is the you were both on the remaining side of the Brexit referendum. What is the role that young people can play in, in averting this crisis? That's assuming we can, so I'd yeah. love your view on that.
2: Assuming it's a crisis as well. There'd be plenty of people in Britain who wouldn't agree. Um, is, are you one of them? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I'm, sadly, I, I missed the session, but I have been told uh, by my friend Jitesh about the remarkable presentation that you three made. And I, I, I mean, it's unimaginable the horror that you went through or the suffering of your uh, classmates. But I think the way that for some reason this tragic school shooting has turned into a political movement in the United States is, uh, is brilliant. I mean, it's just simply brilliant. And, and of course, it is, it's rather than just mourning the death of your classmates uh, to sort of turn their, that tragedy into a positive force for change is brilliant. And even in a system where you're told you can never get any changes in gun control, the fact that it feels like it's at least inching forward, certainly for the first time that I've been aware of, is, uh, is down to you. And so that, first of all, uh, congratulations on that. And second, look, there, I think young people engage in issues. They don't always see politics or you know what <coughs> happens in the Congress or the House of Commons or the French National Assembly is. As, um, relevant to those issues, although I would argue, as someone who uh, gave much of my life to politics, that of course it is ultimately where those decisions are decided. But I don't see any sort of disengagement amongst young people in the things that they care about that shape our world. Uh, whether it's you know, climate change, or as we were just saying, gun control, or indeed uh, issues around um, diversity, uh, gay rights, immigration, and in the UK's case, our relationship with the European Union. Um, And of course, these are all generalizations. There were young people who voted to leave the EU, and there were old people who voted to remain. Nevertheless, it's broadly the case that the older you were in our country, the more likely it was that you were going to uh, vote to leave the EU. And as a result, I know young people feel Uh, disenfranchised or they feel that some huge decision has been taken about their future uh, over which they either had a say but but lost the argument, if you like, or lost the vote or indeed didn't have a say at all. I have a 16-year-old son who feels very angry that he he was not asked about a decision that's going to have a big impact on his life and and those of his age. Um, Now, there are various... I don't think that's yet coalesced around any sort of significant force that is about to stop Brexit. Indeed, my personal view is that Brexit is going ahead, and in a year's time, we will be uh, leaving the European Union. Uh, But it will have an impact, I think, on the form we leave, and it will change uh, certain debates which are linked to Brexit, but not exclusively linked to Brexit, like immigration, where it's felt to me for many years as if the argument's all been flowing in one direction around um, you know there are too many immigrants coming into the country, etc. To for the first time, and this is often driven by uh, the younger voices, uh, a sense of well, hold on, well, what about the value that immigration brings? What about the contribution that immigrants make? Aren't we happy to live in a in a diverse society? And I feel that as the editor of London's newspaper, you know, which is the I would argue the most international city in the world, actually. Um, that, that message is being heard and it's, it's being driven by younger people.
0: But do you think that it's possible for Theresa May to strike a good Brexit
2: deal? Well, look, I think Britain will be poorer than it would otherwise have been because we've left the EU and there's nothing we can do about that. But how much poorer, and by the way, that is what the government's own internal studies show, how much poorer depends a lot on how we leave the EU. and. You know, I have argued that we should be re- te- remaining in things like the single market and the customs union. Uh, and I think that would more accurately reflect the outcome of a, re- a referendum where 17 million people voted to leave, but 16 million people voted to remain. You know, If you've got a country divided like that, yes, okay, the vote was to leave. I don't personally think that can be reversed. I think I might disagree with Tony on that. but. But I definitely think the way to re- try and bring the country together again is for a form of Brexit that keeps Britain in certain key European arrangements which are not exclusive to EU membership. You know, Norway, Switzerland, Turkey, there are plenty of countries who aren't in the EU who are in some or several of these arrangements. And that would, in my view, make the economic damage much less.
0: MR. What, what Mr. Blair, what, what do you think Brexit is doing to Britain's standing in the world? <laughs> Small question.
1: <clears throat> well, it's a big question with an easy answer. I think it, it for sure diminishes our standing. I mean, look, if you, if, you, if you get out of the biggest commercial market and leading political union in the world, which is right on your doorstep, to which you're physically joined by the channel tunnel, you're commercially joined by the European single market. You're joined by ties of history and geography, stretch back many, many years. If you get out of that, you will, you will diminish your, your standing. And you know, I think the most important thing to take a step back, and I, I want to come back to the young people actually, but if you just take a step back and look what's happening in the 21st century, basically the world is going to, to change in many ways, but one dramatic change is going to be in the geopolitics of the world it's going to shift east hmm. and there is literally no doubt about that i mean when i first became prime minister you would make speeches about the rise of china and you know you just have a line in it the rise of china and everyone yeah, okay right today I mean, what is happening in china is of fundamental importance to the whole of the world there are no problems that are going to be resolved without china <laughs> There are issues that are going to come onto the agenda in which Chinese participation and Chinese influence is not going to be manifest. So this is going to change the whole way the world is. And the population of China is more than the population of Europe and America put together and virtually doubled. So that geopolitical change is going to be enormous. Now, how do countries react? So you're going to have America will remain the dominant power in the West. And then you're going to have China, and in time to come, I think, India as well, another large population country. And if you actually analyze the economies of the world, whereas in the year 2000, European economies still dominated the top 10 economies in the world, you fast forward to 2030, and even more when you get to 2050, then the whole picture changes. The Chinese economy, the Indian economy, many, many times the size of any European economy. Now, in those circumstances, How do you, as a medium-sized country, which is what Britain is, how do you retain power and influence in order to protect your interests? And here's where the whole rationale of the European Union has changed. In in my father's generation, after the war, the rationale was peace. After after 50 years of the most two world wars the most terrible fighting, after centuries in which Europe had been periodically at war and actually less periodically at peace, Europe came together. That was the rationale back then, peace. The rationale today is power. It's that no European country, no matter how large or significant within Europe, is going to be able, on its own, to have the effect it wants to have unless they band together. And that's why if you look in, in Asia, for example, you have ASEAN forming. If you look at Africa, you've got the Africa Union that is now trying to make itself work in a more effective way. In South America you've got Mercosur you know this is why you have the well at least uh, depending on what Donald Trump does you have NAFTA arrangements on, on trade with Canada, U.S and Mexico. this is the way the world is so this is why it, it, you know when you look at my son's generation, you know in the world to come they need to be part of the European Union and you know look this is, you know, what I would say to the young people, I fully uh, concur with what George was saying earlier, I'm sorry I missed the presentation, but thank you so much for coming, but what is important to recognize always about politics is that, you know, politics can put people off, it can be a dreary, dreadful business, it can, at points go into corruption and intrigue that, that is deeply unpleasant, but in the end, nothing changes without politics. And actually, when you look back on human history, you know, the cynics always want to tell you nothing changes. But actually, the cynics themselves never change anything. Only if people are prepared to get involved and create the process of political change, do things change and change for the better. And you can see this right throughout human history. So this is why it's important for young people uh, to get involved. If they have a passionate desire to make change, there's only one way to do it, and that's actually to get yourself Hmm. immersed it and get going and you know I remember um, believe it or not I still remember when I I was sort of 17, 18, 19, 20 I mean there's a lot of other things that take your time as a young person um, most of which are much more enjoyable than politics Hmm. but if you have if you have a belief and you want to change the world then no matter how hard it looks no matter how difficult how challenging you've got to get
0: involved. It's really interesting. Thank you for that. You're both of you tried to move your, your own parties to the center ground. Um, the Conservatives now favor We a, both
2: done brilliantly at that. <laughs> Which is exactly where I'm going. You, you favored our you know, work the in progress, <laughs> let's say.
0: You know, do you think you were wrong to think you could only win from there? And is it possible now for these parties to win from a more polarized position?
2: And my next question, sorry. Yeah. Can Jeremy Corbyn win? Um, The the answer to both questions is um, yes. So I think there's an enormous gap uh, in British politics and indeed uh, emerging in other other countries too, um, which is where both of us used to win general elections. You know, we we were on opposite um, in different parties. And um, I don't believe that the sort of moderate, pro-business, socially liberal, um, internationalist Part of the British population just sort of disappeared, you know, and that the people we used to compete over. Um, in fact, I was I was saying on my way here that um, when we were fighting general elections against each other, uh, although thankfully I didn't quite get crushed by the Blair steamroller, um, <laughs> I had to deal with his successor, which was a bit easier. But um, <laughs> but. Um, We we, we used to, there was always a a name for these families that we were competing over, and they were called, you know, they were originally Essex Man, and then it was Worcester Woman, and then it was Florida Families. And and I was thinking this morning, walking around, the result, that the the British people here, at this result, were exactly the sort of people who would be thinking, well, I might vote Conservative, I might vote Labour, and they were up for grabs. And I don't think that has disappeared in British politics. Now, for a variety of reasons, which I can go into, um, you know, the impact of a financial crisis, the technological change we've been talking about, uh, the issue of Brexit. It, it both, you know, the hard Brexiteers have dragged the Conservative Party uh, to the right, and, the, and Corbyn has, and his, and his uh, you know, neo-Marxists have captured the machinery of the Labour Party. Um, now, either something will happen in those parties to, um, to ch- change, to break that uh, development, For a variety of reasons, I think it's actually easier in the Conservative Party because it's not as as the citadel hasn't fallen, which it has in the Labour Party. Um, But um, but that's where you can win elections in the future, Um, and that certainly, you know, I have placed the my the paper I edit right in that territory because it seems to me there's also largely a gap in the media market, with one or two exceptions. You know, where is the pro-business, socially liberal? Uh, internationalist newspaper. Uh, and there are some broadsheets that try and do that, but as a, a mass market uh, paper, there is no one else. And so I'm driving the paper right into that space and, and, and you know, sticking it both to the hard Brexiters and to Corbyn. Now, all of that said, um, of course, you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is, you know, did well at the last election in Britain. There are only seven seats that the Conservatives um, can lose. Either to Labour or the Liberal Democrats for their, the Conservative government to fall in Britain, uh, and the Conservatives will be seeking a fourth term at the next general election, which has historically been very difficult to achieve. So the Conservatives cannot take victory for granted, <laughs> and certainly cannot say, you know, you've, you, know, the other guy is so bad, you've got to vote for us, right? No one in a marketplace, you don't go, my product might not be great, but you should see the other guys, you know. Um, and we are just going to have to massively up our game, because uh, uh, I'm still a member of the Conservative Party, uh, if, um, if we're g- uh, going to see a Conservative government re elected, defying essentially the, the sort of historical uh, odds. That said, in my view, if Labour was led by anyone other than Jeremy Corbyn, pretty much, uh, I mean, I could think of 100 Labour MPs. And that's being conservative. I can think of 100, 200. Almost anyone leading that party, other than Jeremy Corbyn, would be doing much better now. Because you know, they would be 15, 20 points ahead in the opinion polls, and a lot of people who are sticking with the conservatives for fear of something worse uh, would be, um, I think, um, reassured.
0: Mr. Blair, do you agree? <laughs> um, <laughs> well.
2: Uh, I
1: I agree, uh, first of all, I I agree that it's possible today to win not from the centre. I still don't think it's wise, but I think it's possible. I think politics has changed in a pretty radical and fundamental way um, for uh, different reasons, um, some of which are objective to do with the financial crisis and so on, um, stagnating incomes of... of, um, of a large section of the population, some of which are subjective. I mean, personally, I think social media is a revolutionary phenomenon. I mean, we're talking about technology, but I think it changes the whole way the political debate <coughs> operates. And, you know, the thing about social media is that it's, um, let me choose my words carefully. Uh, I mean, one of the first things that you learn in politics is that those that shout loudest don't necessarily deserve to be heard most. That's not social media. <laughs> There's a lot of loud shouting. And what that does is it, it creates situations in which, if you're not careful, and especially where the media then follows this trend, the conventional media, you end up with two groups of people who are very polarized and very separate from each other, who aren't talking to each other, listening to each other, and actually, if you're not careful, not liking each other, And therefore, the politics that that we represent in a way, whatever the different political positions from time to time, was the politics in which the concept was one where you build bridges to those that don't agree with you. Okay. That, as a concept today, is actually quite a lost concept in politics. I mean, I, I had this conversation with an American friend of mine the other day who's, um, you know, who's a, who's, a, who's a big Democrat, and he told me about a Thanksgiving dinner that he had for his family. And he said, we had the most terrible row about Trump. And I said, uh, well, go with some of your family Trump supporters. And he said, no, 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 they, they, they all hated Trump. And I said, well, what was the row about? And he said, well, some of them felt that we didn't hate him enough. LAUGHTER and you know, so you know you've got a you've got a politics today that is very you know where, where the choices the choice seems to be you've got to stack up as many people who agree with you as possible to outweigh the other people who agree with the other side now that wasn't the way we approach politics we approach politics by saying okay what are they saying that you can distill into those things that might be, for example, around the issue of immigration. Right? Take, it, take a hard issue. Now, my attitude to that is you've got to listen to what people's genuine concerns and anxieties are about that. Because sometimes they're worried about the process of change happening too fast. They're worried about integration. Is it, are people really f- agreeing with and following the values of the country and so on? So you can have a set of anxieties about immigration that are reasonable anxieties and that we should try and meet. And then you can have a set of anxieties about immigration that are based on prejudice. But what's important is to try and see how you build bridges. Okay. That's not the politics we're in at the moment. So I, I agree with George. I mean, I think you're, you're in a situation where the, the, those of us in the center are going to have to really do a lot of rethinking. The center, in my view, only works as a place of change. It doesn't work as a place of splitting the difference. So what we're trying to do from the institute at the moment, my my institute, is look at what would be a progressive center-ground agenda manifesto for the future, and how do you show people that you can rekindle a narrative of optimism about the future because you've got policies that can meet the challenge and access the opportunities. And right now, what you've got on left and right is a politics that's essentially pessimistic, and what happens when you have pessimistic politics is that people look for someone to blame. Right. That's, if you're pessimistic about the world, you're thinking, whose fault is it? Right. And that's why you, you have bits of the left going anti-business, bits of the right really targeting, targeting immigrants, and neither is really dealing with the challenges of the future. So this is what I think. And The, the simple answer to can Jeremy Corbyn win an election? Yeah, he can. And that's not the, the issue. The issue is... is <laughs> you know, what is, the, what is the way people from that progressive center ground position can actually offer an alternative to that, what I would say is actually strangely quite an old fashioned form of leftist position,
0: but nonetheless is appearing to large numbers of people as something new. Thank you so much for that. You made my next question quite easy to ask, which is about the transatlantic alliance. What kind of shape do you think that's in today? Uh, It's
1: difficult, but it remains more important than anything else for the reasons I was saying earlier. I mean, if you've got this enormous power rising in the East, and let's be clear what's on offer. You know, look, I personally am an admirer of the, the, the quality of the Chinese leadership, and I think they're trying to do the right things for their country and so on and so forth. But don't be under any doubt, especially as a result of recent changes. This is an alternative model of politics. And what you're finding around the world today is that liberal democracy as a concept is under challenge. And people are saying, you know, even with our own systems, people are saying, you know what, maybe a strong man's a better way of running the thing. If you don't have to worry about these parliaments and uh, free media and all the rest of it. And you just get on and you, you do what you, you think. OK, so in this, in this day and age, as the 21st century develops, that transatlantic alliance with America and Europe, leave aside, you know, whoever ever may be president from time to time or prime minister from time to time, that transatlantic alliance is, in my view, fundamentally important because ultimately it represents not just a set of interests but a set of values. Uh,
0: Mr. Osborne, I, we we speak a lot about, as Mr. Blair said, you know, how, who can hate the President Trump more? I mean, that is the analogy used. But rather than ask you, you know, do you do you what policies you think are a little Mm. bit
2: ridiculous. Are there any policies that either of you actually agree with of the Trump administration? Well, I think um, there's quite a lot of the Trump administration policies which are, I think, more orthodox than the president would lead you to believe. Um, I think any Republican president uh, would have attempted to pass a significant tax cut. The congressional republicans have been talking about it for years paul ryan the speaker of congress have been uh, devising various plans and the tax cut that was passed which you can either agree with or not agree with personally i think it's going to make america very competitive in, with the corporate tax changes uh, and it's similar to what i tried to do in britain of cutting the corporate tax rate um, i think you know that is a pretty orthodox republican policy deregulation is a pretty orthodox republican policy you might not agree with it but it, you can't complain that it's somehow just Trump. And even on trade, where I think you know, America is heading in the wrong direction, of course, Hillary Clinton in her campaign was saying NAFTA you know, is, is unfair against the United States and you know we are not going to go ahead with the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that's all quite orthodox. And, and then when you get to foreign policy, again, you have to kind of aim off for the you know, eccentric tweets and the wild language and all of that. But, Standing by the Gulf states, having a strong alliance with Saudi Arabia, again, you might not agree with that as American policy, but it's pretty orthodox. In fact, if anything, Barack Obama and George W. Bush were the outliers, Um, and this is a return to more traditional post-war US foreign policy. And in North Korea, okay, you have to again say, ignore the Elton John lyrics and and the, I've got a bigger red button than you. What is he saying? He's saying, if you attack us, we will destroy you. Absolutely classic U.S. deterrence policy. And we're going to work with people like China to try and find a solution to this problem. So it's, it's the sort of, some, sort of beneath the, the surface, quite a lot of what the, this administration does is not so uh, strange. But but the problem for you know our successes in the British government, and this would be a equally true in, if we went to Paris or Berlin or Tokyo or, or indeed potentially here is it's, it's just very unpredictable at the top. You know, um, you would always as a British Prime Minister or French President or German Chancellor you know, assume, assume certain American actions to come to your aid, uh, to support you in an argument and you're just not entirely sure with this guy. You know? um, and Donald Trump it was quite early on, but nevertheless, his presidency you know, tweeted out that Britain should appoint Nigel Farage as our ambassador to Washington, <laughs> the leader of our you know, sort of populist far right party, UKIP. Now, you, know, you don't expect your kind of close ally to be saying your political opponent should be our ambassador in Washington. Um, and, and so that's a big problem. I think the unpredictability, the, you know, uh, the kind of eccentricity in the White House, and just as Britain and other countries is kind of getting used to working with Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, uh, General McMaster, the the National Security Advisor Gary Cohen, the Economic Adviser, these are the kind of reasonable, sensible, rational people you can do business with, uh, and who explain, you know, what's going on. They're all they're all fired, or you know, two have been and one's about to be. And. Um, and you have to sort of start again, and then there'll be, and it won't be as if the sort of assistant secretary we've known for 15 years is going to get the job. It'll be some person we've never heard of from some, you know, uh, right-wing think tank in Washington who suddenly sort of pops up and is the new uh, person. And th- that is very, very difficult for America's allies.
0: Mr. Blair, in terms of um, one of the other things that we haven't discussed and should, you know, Mr. Osmond's talked about North Korea, and I was going to crack a joke, which is not really a joke, but this was supposed to be off the record, but Putin has everything. So, <laughs> but what is your, uh, the Britain's response to Russia after the use of this nerve agent in the UK? Do you think you would have done something different? Would you have been tougher? No, I think
1: the government's done, done the right thing in
0: re- relation
1: to it. It's got to, it, it, it can't allow such a thing to happen and not take action. I mean, but I think there's a bigger question under underlying that because, you know, over the years there's been periodic action taken. What this shows, to go back to your earlier question, is the importance of, of the alliance and the importance of having the allies in, in conversation with each other, where they're able to, to work out a strategy for keeping the West strong, because you are defending certain values. And I think the single biggest problem with the, the way the U.S. is operating at the moment is that it's, it's clear what its interests are, but the U.S. has always been a, a representative of certain values, and that is what is important. And you know, I remember in the conversations I had with American presidents over, over the years. You know, you were able to have a relationship in which you were, whatever differences there were, you wanted to manage because you realized the rest of, in the rest of the picture, it was so important to have that cooperation that nothing should stand in the way of it. And that's what's tough now.
0: But isn't America too close to Russia?
1: Well, I don't think it's close to Russia at a sort of, institutional level I mean I think it, in fact they're what they say is pretty tough um, and I've really no idea about all this stuff to do with the the Mueller investigation and so on but I, as I say I don't think that's really the point I think the point is how does the West how does the West present itself in a unified way so that as this century progresses it's clear that we are prepared to defend the model of liberal democracy as the right form of government yes and our and, and believe in it sufficiently uh, ourselves. And that means, frankly, protecting the institutions of the state. Um, you know, it means protecting, for example, the rule of law. I mean, the more I've you know, seen of the world, because of the work we do in many different countries around the world, not, not least in, in Africa, I mean, I have become passionate around the rule of law, because I think it's just so important for a country to realize when your citizens are up in front of a court, and they've got an independent judiciary. I mean, this is a massive thing that many, many billions of people in the world don't, don't have access to. So when we're defending these values, or like a free media, look, you know, I'm very critical of aspects of the way that the media behave today, but I still think a free media is a vital part of a free society. And you know, this is I think we we need to understand, and this is what worries me about the present position of the US, we need to understand going forward, and I think we're really, we haven't got got our heads around this, our value system in a fundamental way is going to be challenged in the 21st century. There are gonna be powerful countries that that are going to say, you know what, our way of doing things is better and different than yours. And that's not happened uh, since the Soviet Union, and even that, You have to go back several centuries before there was a power in the East that was able to rival the powers in the West. So we're we're in a new world today and that's why it's important that these values are kept kept clear and kept maintained
0: and kept supported. Thank you, I'm going to ask one more question before I ask some of our, uh, our attendees to perhaps pose a few. If I can just ask my colleagues at the back to have microphones on the ready and we'll take a couple of questions. Uh, It would be remiss of me not to go back to education. And in particular, one of the things that's really um, caught everyone's eyes and actually had a universal reaction to is this whole thing about President Trump saying that teachers should be armed in classrooms. I mean, I do want to get your comment on that.
2: Well, I have to say it is so alien to uh, any way that a European would think (laughs) that it's sort of difficult to comprehend and even more difficult to comprehend that it has apparently kind of won him quite a lot of support in the United States. Um, I mean, Britain had a terrible school massacre uh, when Tony Blair was the opposition leader, I think, uh, in a Scottish town called Dunblane. Uh, and the response of Britain was to ban handguns. Handguns existed for, you couldn't buy assault rifles in Britain, so that wasn't even an issue. But um, you know, handguns are designed and built for one purpose, to kill other human beings. They're not used for sport or hunting or shooting things, you know, uh, like deer or birds, if you don't want to do that kind of thing. So, you know, it, they're literally built, and we, and we banned them in Britain. And there was a bit of fuss at the time from s- sort of sporting clubs and the like, but um, as a result, uh, Britain has one of the lowest gun, um, you know uh, you, the, the fewest number of guns in its society. And indeed, one of the reasons, I remember when um, when I was in the Britain's National Security Council, one of our primary protections against uh, mass shootings, either of the kind that tragically happened in Florida recently or um, uh, you know, a sort of a terrorist attack, is that it's just unbelievably difficult to get hold of machine guns in Britain. Um, so I have to say, I know we're obviously a million miles away from that in the United States, but thanks to the good work of the students, uh, there is at least some forward progress in there. But uh, the idea in Britain or France or Germany that you would arm teachers is, I'm afraid, totally bizarre. (laughs) Agree? Nothing to (laughs) add.
0: Thank you. We're gonna go to the gentleman. Please stand and introduce yourself.
1: Uh, Hi there, I'm Ed Dortrol. I'm deputy editor of the TES. That's the Times Education Supplement. Um, I just wondered whether either of you had any opinions on whether you thought Brexit was a symptom of the failure of education? Uh, I mean look there are perfectly educated people who voted for Brexit. Um, now I don't agree with them but I don't think education per se is, is, is the problem. What I do think is that over a long period of time, people have tended to see and have been, as it were, there's been a very hard campaign to persuade people that all their problems arise from Europe. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to me is when people say we want to take control back of our laws. And you know, I say to people, look, I was prime minister for 10 years. I honestly can't think of a law I was desperate to pass that Europe told me I couldn't or that I was forced to pass that I didn't want to. Now, maybe around some of the things around the edges on VAT and so on, maybe. But actually, if you go back through the speeches of chancellors and prime ministers, either for the budget or for the Queen's speech, which are the two big events where legislation's announced, it's very hard to see it. So education in the broad sense, I think, yeah, it's a pity that people, I think, Strangely, in this past two years, as a result of all the debate around Brexit, people are learning a lot more about Europe, and and, and maybe this will make it make a difference when, as as I hope, we get to the point where people say, "Look, once we see the alternative to European Union membership, we want to have a vote on it." So then, I think it'll be very important. But I don't, I don't personally think you can point to our education system per se as the, as the, as the, 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 the problem. But, I, um, but I, certainly, I certainly hope and believe that over the next few months, we get to the point where it's accepted that before we take an irrevocable step and we actually leave in March next year, people have the chance to have a say on whatever deal the government comes up with.
2: I mean, it, it, it's statistically the case that if you had a university degree, you were more likely to vote, uh, remain in the referendum. But I don't think you, therefore, should say the education system failed and led to a bunch of sort of ignorant voters who voted for Brexit. I think the voters who voted for Brexit you know, felt, or the vast majority of them felt, that this was a solution to somehow shielding them or protecting them from uh, Changes in the economy and globalization for which, because they perhaps didn't have university degrees, they were least equipped to um, handle or were more likely to be casualties of. Um, so it, it might have been um, you know at least in their minds a more sort of rational response um, and uh, you know and the, and I think the kind of challenge of making people understand that this technology is a force for good, it's not something to be afraid of, we can work with it to create better jobs and higher incomes for people, is a, a big challenge for those of us who are you know, believers, essentially, in technological progress.
0: Thank you. We're going to go over here. Please, um, please stand. Sally Warder from the Press Association. Um, you kind of touched upon this. Um, how severe do you think the threat from Russia is? And do you think Jeremy Corbyn is naive to that threat?
2: What well, should I do the Russia one? Um, I <laughs> um, well, I think you know, not everyone in this room will necessarily understand this, but as far as you know, we can see, and we certainly had no plausible alternative explanation, the Russian state, or elements of the Russian state, ordered an attempted assassination in the United Kingdom a couple of weeks ago using a chemical weapon which was barely known to exist and certainly has never been used. And indeed, it's the first use of chemical weapons uh, on the European continent since the Second World War. So it is a pretty staggering thing that happened, and indeed has led to uh, further investigations which suggest there may have been other assassination attempts uh, on British soil. Uh, and we know there was a successful assassination uh, of someone called uh, Litvinenko a-, a decade ago using, a, uh, using radioactive material. Um, so no state can tolerate that. Uh, no alliance of Western states accept that. I mean, it is completely out with the law, well, the rule of law in our own country, of course, around murder and international accepted norms, which is you don't go and assassinate people in other, you know, in other countries. Um, or indeed in your own, preferably. Um, and so, so the, the problem then is um, what do you do next? And unless you're prepared to go to war with that country, which obviously we would not want to do in the, with Russia, uh, you have to operate Within the constraints of diplomatic uh, expulsions, uh, s- uh, sanctions against individuals and, and state entities, and the like, and I think um, you know, I've, people in Britain would know I'm not you know a um, completely um, enthusiastic supporter of Mrs. May, but um, I think she has done a pretty good job. You know, she has uh, es- she has ratcheted up uh, the um, the response: she has expelled Russian diplomats, and she has got to think. Uh, this is, I think, an often missed point. What, what do I? How do I react to the Russian reaction? You know, so she's got to keep further options in her locker to uh, make sure yeah. that uh, you can um, increase the pressure. Um, whether this will change Russian behaviour and the uh, thinking of Vladimir Putin, you know, I, I think even I suspect Mrs. May thinks that that will be difficult to do. But you have to, you have to demonstrate a, a, a tough response. I mean, because there's no other option. And Jeremy Corbyn's behavior has frankly been disgraceful. You know, He has ended up sounding like an apologist for the Russian regime. And he's perfectly entitled to um, you know, raise questions about the government's response. Uh, he is the opposition leader, and we have an opposition in a democracy precisely to raise questions. But to appear as a kind of apologist to the Russian regime or to suggest that somehow Russia was framed in some elaborate kind of conspiracy involving MI6 and the CIA and all you know, is just nonsense and has kind of further reminded people of his unsuitability to be prime minister, in my view.
0: I'm going to take a couple more questions, Mr. Blair, if that's OK. I know one of the young people from Florida, Lewis is it? Lewis is actually uh, from Coventry, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. You want to ask your question, sir? Um, yeah, so in the wake of what happened, a lot of my students and I became very politically active, and we
1: were really helped by the presence of the media. However, one of the things we noticed was that the more radical members of our school were able to gain a lot more attention by the media, and that made it especially difficult to make change and to get the other side to agree with us because you know politics in America is already you know, deeply divided, so obviously coming from a time when polis, political parties worked much closer, what advice could you give like the more moderates um, to actually make change and bring people together? That's a really uh, that's a great question, because you, know, it, it, it you could take not just your issue, but many other issues and, and have the same discussion. I mean, my advice is, is to keep going and to make sure that by reaching larger numbers of lawmakers who will listen to a, a, a moderate and sensible case, you, know, you will in the end break through. And you know, there, there, are many, there are many examples I can remember from the time I was prime minister. When, if you were a decision maker, you were wanting to make change, the manner in which the people asking for the change asked for it was an important component of allowing you to make the change, OK? So to give you from a completely dif- two examples from completely different issues, when we wanted to introduce a minimum wage in the UK, which, believe it or not, had been a subject of enormous controversy over the years, the fact that we managed to put together a coalition of people that included employers as well as employees who were asking for that allowed us to overcome a lot of the opposition because it looked like we were making a reasonable case and we were trying to understand what possible objections there were and overcome them. So we succeeded. I mean, for 100 years, people have been trying to implement it and and we did it. Another example was on, on the issue of gay rights, where, again, it's impossible to recognize this now. Unfortunately, this is now part of the political consensus between Labour and Conservative in the UK. But back in the 80s, it was a fiercely fought over issue. But the way that campaign was mounted when I was in office by those people who were leading it made it easier for us to bring over people to our side in the campaign because they, it was done in a sensible and thoughtful way that understood some of the objections of the other side and tried to persuade rather than bludgeon. Right? And this is the, 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 the essence of good politics is, and I can give you another example actually, which is over overseas aid and development. You know, I always say to people the fact that, that, that you had a, a, a movement where people were prepared to come in and say, look, we understand what the problems are in getting more public spending to aid in development, but here's the case for it, and this is what you can do, rather than sort of what I call the kind of finger jabbing um, exercise, which simply polarizes the politicians. And, you know, you, you can get a round of applause at a meeting much easier by going heavy. But if you actually want to achieve an outcome, you've got to try and persuade some people. You've got to bring over those who are persuadable. And you know, I think this is, you know, my advice would be, keep going with what you're doing and try and find some of those people who may be, at the moment, opposed to what you're advocating but are persuadable. Try and bring some of those on side and get them to articulate that. And the other thing which is really difficult to do, really, really difficult to do, is sometimes you've also got to be prepared to speak up against those people who frankly are more interested in getting, you know, their face on the TV and being, you know, uh, someone who, as I say, is going to get the round of applause at the meeting than actually achieve the objective. And it's a very tough thing to do, particularly on a sensitive issue. But ultimately, you know, my experience of political change is it comes about when you've got a good cause well pursued. But history is littered with great causes, badly pursued, that don't, <laughs> that don't achieve a result. So I think it's a really difficult thing that you're engaged in, but it's really important to do it. And you know you should know that you have the good wishes, I'm sure, of all the people here. But also, you know, when you think of what you can actually do The most important thing in politics is not what you've said when all is finished, it's what you've actually done. And the only way you're going to do that is in the way you've just described.
0: Would you like to...
2: (laughs) I think... Just, by the way, Tony was explaining how you shouldn't just aim for a round of applause in the room. But... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, The... um, Uh, I I repeat, I mean, I think it's fantastic that you and your your, uh, fellow class uh, students are here. Uh, I I, I would just add to everything that uh, you've just heard. I would be quite specific about what it is you want to achieve. Um, I think sometimes movements for change, pressure groups, uh, NGOs, grassroots campaigns like the one that you're involved in, are 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 sometimes kind of a bit wooly about what they actually want the law to be. Um, And of course, when it comes to the issue of gun control, there's such a range of things from modest changes to radical changes. Um, But in the end, you've got to, what are we trying to achieve with this campaign? What is the legal change in the United States or in individual states that we want to achieve? And then, to borrow an adage of an American president, Lyndon Johnson, the first rule of politics is you've got to learn to count. So you've got to take the 400-odd members of Congress and say, we need at least half of them to vote for this change. And how are we going to make that happen? Uh, And you will have seen shows like The West Wing and that film, The American President, where they have the whiteboards and they tick off the senators and they tick off the congressmen. You've got to to be effective, um, ultimately, in effecting that change. How are you going to get people who previously voted against uh, gun control to vote for the specific measures you put forward? And there are two ways of doing it. You know, you can either inspire them with your example and f- make them genuinely sort of change their mind about the issue. You know, or bluntly, you can you can threaten them with political consequences in their districts and their states if they don't, because you've got the numbers of people, uh, you know, because learning how to count also counts in elections. Um, and, um, and I would be, you know, very sort of specific about that. You'll always have people who, um, you know, um, are more aggressive, shout louder, and so on. What you mustn't let them do is sort of distract you from your cause, and if you really need to, emphasize that you are different and you're asking for different things. But I think quite often, in my advice often to people who want to, you know, what is it you want to change? What is the law you want to change? And have you got enough elected representatives who are going to agree with you? And how, if you haven't, how are you going to shift those people and be very focused on that?
0: I'm going to take one final question from this side.
1: Very quickly, it relates to the issue of whether we're educating our uh, young ones on how to resist exploitative polarization. Should we abolish Prime Minister's questions in Parliament? (laughs) Is there something about the style of conflict that we see where people shout past each other that show people that you cannot have conflict in a more constructive manner?
0: Well, um, I, I, better leave, and I think it. you should leave. Um,
2: I should leave uh, Tony Blair probably to have the last word, since uh, he was the prime minister. Um, but I spent twenty. So you? Yeah, well, I was twenty something years of my life preparing Conservative leaders for prime minister's questions. I mean, it seems now an unbelievable waste of time, but it was. Kind of, <laughs> but it, was it was really interesting, and I used to play Tony Blair in the um, in the preparation sessions we had beforehand, um, and. Um, and then I did uh, on a number of occasions. I stood in for the Prime Minister and did it myself. I would uh, make two observations. First of all, I, by the time I was standing in for the Prime Minister, I had presented eight budgets in Britain, and I still thought Prime Minister's questions was unbelievably difficult and technically challenging for an individual to do. Uh, the kind of randomness of the questions and the sudden move from light to shade, the clash with the opposition leader. Uh, so. Um, that is the first thing, as someone who had already done a lot of very high-profile parliamentary performances. And second, and I'm afraid you're probably not going to agree with this, given the thrust of your question, I thought it was a very, very effective way of keeping a prime minister on their toes. And it was also an effective tool, i say this as someone who was the Chancellor, the Exchequer for many of these years, uh, for the prime minister keeping a control on their government and being able to make change in their government, because it forced the prime minister at least once a week to be on top of all the issues that the the government was facing. And where a government policy was inadequate, it would be exposed either in the preparation for Prime Minister's questions or in the delivery of the answer, which is not well received in the House of Commons chamber. And I think there's a reason why um, the British Parliament remains um, a kind of source of interest around the world, much more so than the German Bundestag or the French National Assembly, because of Prime Minister's questions and that sense of real lively debate and, um, you know, um, the, the prime minister, the most powerful person in the country, is is there, exposed, uh, and and held to account. So, for all its kind of yarbu elements, I think it's overwhelmingly a good thing.
1: It was hell to do. I'm just telling you that. <laughs> and even today, now, uh, on a Wednesday at uh, midday, I will get a chill at the back of my neck, uh, remembering it. And. Um, there was, but I, you're never going to get rid of it. And yes, it's true. The, the problem is the problem with with prime minister's questions is when if you if you put 600 people in a reasonably small room in the House of Commons chambers, not a lot bigger than this yes. room, and you tell them to debate subjects upon which people have very strong views, they're going to be shouting and bawling. I guarantee you can take the most reasonable people in the world, and they'll be doing it. But prime minister's questions. I mean, you remember all the the. The, the, the few triumphs and the many humiliations, as if they were yesterday. My very, the worst moment I actually had was was when William Hague was leader of the opposition. He was very, very good at uh, at, at, at doing it, and we decided that we would publish an annual account of all the achievements of the government. It was some crazy idea someone had. In, uh, anyway. <laughs> so you know. Every year we were published, we were, we were going to be more transparent and open than any government had ever been before, and we were going to say exactly what we'd achieved. So we put this document out that had all the achievements of the, you know, the government. We built this, and we've done that, and we've done this, and the next thing. And so you go into Prime Minister's Questions, and I'm feeling quite chipper that day, and everything seems to be going quite well. You know, and This is always, by the way, the other thing about Prime Minister's Questions, whenever you thought it was going to be easy, it turned out to be impossible. Whenever you thought it was impossible, it turned out to be easy, but anyway. So I get up and I sort of make some remarks about this, um, this annual report and the great achievements of the government. William Hay gets that, and he says, um, yeah, just, um, so on page 42 of this report, it talks about uh, the new Sheffield Sports Centre. Where is it?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, he just sat down, right.
2: And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know where this <laughs> you know and unfortunately so I what- remember being in the <laughs> room preparing for that and Seb Co- <laughs> so Sebastian Coe who's now President of International Athletics uh, was then working for William Hague and, and we were all in the room me and William, and and he said, well, I come from Sheffield, and I'm interested in sports. It doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't believe it. It was like we'd discovered gold. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, George.
0: (laughs) 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 So there you go. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, before I... uh